Welcome to Follow Your Fire, a podcast on life, work, and purpose. Join us as we reckon with the questions, what should I do with my life? Do I have a purpose? And if so, how the heck do I figure it out? We'll hear some real stories, get some real ideas about how to find purpose, and have as much fun as we can along the way. I'm Melissa Pinnell, life coach, purpose guide, and your host on this journey. I am so glad to have you along. Hey, everybody. If you're listening to this podcast when it's released, it is mid-April of 2020. And that means that depending on where you live in the world, we are pretty deep into quarantine during the coronavirus pandemic. And if you're listening to this when it's released, you're like, duh, I know Melissa. But I know that at some point in the future, this moment is going to be a memory. But I just want to acknowledge in the moment we're in, life is just really weird. It's really different. It changed really fast, right? Like most of us aren't leaving the house. We're practicing social distancing. There's this invisible threat everywhere of a virus that makes us cautious and wary and very aware of our humanness, which I think we often forget about. What I'm really seeing is this awareness of mortality, right? Like People are thinking about something that's always a fact and always certain in life, which is death, but it's not always something that we look at or consider. And right now, many of us are looking at the people we love every time they leave the house and just hoping that they're safe and that we get to keep them for a long time, that our vulnerable loved ones get to live for a long time, or maybe you're a vulnerable person and you're hoping that for yourself. It's just a strange time, right? Like there's this economic uncertainty, people losing their jobs and suddenly working from home. And amidst all of this difficulty, there's also all of this stuff that's happening that's kind of beautiful. Neighbors that are singing from their balconies with each other, people sewing masks for vulnerable workers and coming together to feed kids whose only meal was at school and now they're not at school, so they're not eating. I've seen these drive-by honking celebratory birthday parties and teacher parades so that teachers can say hello to their kids that they miss and vice versa. And there's this really interesting juxtaposition of real great difficulty and struggle and also this abundance of incredible acts of kindness and environmental recovery and this communal feeling that we're all in this together. It's almost like one of those alien movies where they land and even though all these countries don't usually get along, suddenly there's this common enemy or other. And I mean, we shouldn't need an enemy to unite, but in small moments, I have totally sensed that, right? Have you guys seen that? This global community has sprung up. So how does this relate to the podcast? How does this relate to the podcast, Melissa? Well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of creating things even through difficulty. By that, I mean art or things that are amusing, beautiful. I think those things are always important and and maybe even more important when times are tough. So here I am delivering a podcast to your ears, but it's a different sort of podcast. Here's what we're going to do for a few episodes. So those of you that listen to the podcast frequently know that it's usually me interviewing people about how they figured out what to do with their life. 
that might be professionally or in terms of family, spirituality or geography. I basically ask people questions about how they figure out how to spend their time, how they decide to do things in a way that will make them proud at the end of their life. And I mean, that theme is not going away. I actually think now more than ever, many people are reflecting on what they want and who they want to be, right? When life throws us this huge curveball, a really great reaction can be to say, well, if nothing is certain anyway, life is unpredictable. Why not go after my dreams, right? Like why not be who I want to be? So the podcast is not going to stop. The interviews are not going to stop. I have some really great interviews I've already filmed or recorded, I guess, that I'm going to release. I cannot wait to share those with you. But for now, we're going to pivot just a little bit. What we're going to pivot to is this small part of the interviews that I already do. And it's when I ask people how they dealt with obstacles and difficulty, how they overcame the tougher parts of their story. And that's because at the moment we're in, which though it holds this huge promise of awakening and change, is also really difficult for a lot of people, especially some of the more vulnerable populations. I just thought these next few episodes, we would focus on overcoming difficulty and how resilient and incredible the human spirit is. Because yes, things are difficult right now. And yes, humans are resourceful and adaptive and incredibly resilient. And I'm sure that in your story, you, person listening, there are moments that were really challenging, right? There were moments in your story you didn't know how you were going to go on and you felt really broken. And then you went on. You kept going. And my next guest did that too. He kept going. I feel like it was sort of divine timing that I had this interview scheduled. It was just along the regular theme and he was willing to pivot and go this direction with me, which I'm really grateful for. You're about to hear Kenny Hill. He is a drug and alcohol counselor, a trauma recovery specialist, a combat veteran, and someone who has recovered from alcoholism and addiction himself. He's also a father of four and a husband and just this all around incredible human that I'm so grateful to know. And in his story, we dive into not just the journey of figuring out what to do with his life. We don't really talk about how he made those decisions, but we talk about the journey he went on to, to literally save his life so that he could even make decisions about what to do with it. So in the interview, we talk about what it was like for him growing up in a culture that encouraged this toxic masculinity and bred behaviors that led to sickness and unhappiness. We talk about what it was like to come back from active combat in Afghanistan with PTSD. We talk addiction and grief. And like I said, I am just so grateful that I happen to have this interview set up when I think the world most needs reminding that a dark night of the soul does not last forever. Things have to be destroyed in order to be reconstructed. And at the end of the day, Although the grief that comes with saying goodbye to a particular part of yourself or way of life that you're used to is really difficult, it does not compare with the miracle that can happen on the other side. So wherever you are, whatever's happening, keep going 
and thank you for spending time with Kenny Hill and I, as we remind each other all that can live on the other side of pain. Here you go. All right, Kenny, thank you so much for joining us in this new and different form of the podcast. You are one of a series of interviews that we're doing that's really focusing on, to me, the power of the human spirit and our ability to overcome. And I sought you out because I know enough of your story to know that you have quite a story. And to me, it's one that is not just inspiring, but one that also was really difficult. And I'm excited to get to shine a light on both parts of that. And your life is so, I'm sure, multifaceted. There's so many different journeys that you've been on. But tonight, we're going to kind of boil it down to one of the bigger difficulties that you face. So we're going to focus on your journey in and out of addiction. And if we could begin with you telling as best you can sort of how you would say your journey into addiction began. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on the show. Where did the journey of addiction begin? Um, The journey of my use began at 12 years old. It was with um, wine coolers, which is an awesome first thing to begin on. Um, And so uh, that, that was when I first tried anything and, and I had a great experience. The actual addiction, I don't think, really took hold until I was about 18. First with alcohol, and alcohol was more of this thing where um, kind of the culture and the environment in which I was raised in, and alcohol was really prevalent, and specifically with masculinity and, um, and how much one can drink and being a sign of masculinity. Me being a small individual, I'm a small guy, and I can drink quite a bit. And that really, really fed into my ego and, and having people, I guess, speak positively over me um, with my drinking and my ability to drink. So that even fed my ego more into the substance use. And, and soon after that, um, methamphetamine came in, into the picture. And, um, and methamphetamine uh, and, and alcohol really, really became friends of mine for uh, into my uh, early to mid-20s. So, yeah. Wow. So I'm actually really grateful and interested that you brought up something I don't hear people talk a lot about when it comes to addiction and alcoholism, but is the masculinity piece. Because Mm -hmm. as you said it, I was like, oh yeah, of course. I remember that just even being an observer of that culture, thinking back to high school and Mm -hmm. the parties where it was like, who can do the most? And obviously women, you know, we could participate in those moments too. But it wasn't any kind of, if anything, I would sometimes be embarrassed that I could do like, mm. <laughs> like some serious chugging. It wasn't like a badge of honor. Oh, so interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of how it shaped your drinking and using? I guess the identity or the idea of masculinity spoke to um, how much a person can drink, but also like um, how good of an athlete you are, how, how good you can fight to um, how many women you can sleep with and all these sort of ridiculous ideas of of masculinity. So um, the one thing that I could do really well, (laughs) I guess I was an okay athlete, but the one thing I could do really well was use substances. So um, I did that to the best of my ability. And I know that what it did for me, I'm not an outgoing person. I'm not a type A personality. I'm 
reason why I like the counseling thing. I, I can do one-on-ones all day. Um, but you put me in front of a group of, of you know, a hundred people and that's a totally different thing. And so uh, when it came down to social stuff and, and social anxieties and those sort of things, um, the substances made me that person I wanted to be. It made me that type A personality. It made me that outgoing personality. It made me that person where I would, uh, you know, uh, wouldn't be afraid of doing something crazy. Wouldn't be afraid of what people would think. Um, people would then I'd get pats on the back for it and um, all that sort of stuff too. And, and for the beginning portion of of this journey, it was like when I'd wake up in the morning and and not remember what I had done the night before. It was all like, dude, you know what you did last night? Blah, blah, blah. It's like all exciting stuff. And then after a period of time, it turned into, dude, you know what you did last night? Like, bro, it's kind of kind of much. It's a little bit too much. So, and I kind of changed over time. Yeah. I, I love that you actually brought even just the inflection of how someone might say, do you know what you did last night in this? Like, yeah. it could be really humiliating or really kind of celebratory. And I, I think actually that example that you just gave and just how someone might tell you about the night before is really kind of indicative of how drinking and using was where it started off when you were talking about the way you felt in life somewhat insecure, although you didn't use that word, but talking about, you know, there was this toxic masculinity, which is talked a lot more about now than mm -hmm. it was when we were young. Then it was just kind of like, oh yeah, that's what being a dude is. That's what being a woman is. We had these very archaic and unspoken gender identities that are just now, I think, being uh, enlightened, not necessarily even changed. But as you talk about that, I think what's important for me to shed light on to people listening, because I think a lot of us have experienced this, is that drinking and using drugs worked in some ways. And I know that you yeah. and I talk about that in our kind of recovery communities, that it did make us braver. It did make us feel more like the people we thought we should be. It did help us to feel a little more comfortable in these uncomfortable roles that we were kind of assigned at birth. <clears throat> That's a weird way to put it. <laughs> it's not like you were assigned the wrong gender necessarily, but these identities that the world puts us in. So I just appreciate you talking about sort of like the, the reasons we start down these paths. It's not because you said, you know what? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become addicted to meth. Yeah, that's what I'll do. Yeah. So, but I, I do want to hear from that journey. When, when did that inflection in that person's voice, when did that line start to get crossed? What age were you? What was going on in life? Yeah, I think, um, well, there, there were like moments early on around 18 when they would happen here and there, but it's being far between. Um, but more, I guess, after the time I joined the military, shockingly, my, my very first detox was in basic training. And then um, my second detox was in Afghanistan. And then by the time I had my third, that was enough detoxes for me. So um, the alcoholism, um, the alcoholism was rampant before um, before the military, but it really kicked up a notch while in. And then, and I didn't particularly have, have a good experience right off the bat in the military. I, it, it was things weren't great for me. I, I had to earn my keep and earn respect around the, my peers. And until I did that, things weren't going good for me in the infantry. So, um, uh, and that kind of led into some of the drinking, right? That, that led into some of the respect for my peers with my ability to drink. So, um, 
as my experience in the military going to Afghanistan and once I got back from Afghanistan, like in, it, it was essentially letting a dog out of a cage, right? And, and so once I got back from Afghanistan and I had accessibility to substances again, particularly alcohol, it was, it was just on, it really leapt up and went to another level. And I would say probably um, about six months after I returned was when um, uh, early PTSD stuff started coming around uh, regarding combat. And so then, of course, the drinking really kicked up. And then I had a thing with an um, issue with an ex-girlfriend and that didn't go so well. So that kicked up the drinking. So all these little things, it was always one more thing to um, uh, or one more thing that would go wrong one more item of misery that would happen within my life to where it's like, okay, it's time to kick it up a notch and drink and escape through this. Like you, you mentioned uh, insecurity earlier. That, that was it. That, that's it from the beginning. That's when I started at 12 was a whole party situation around insecurity. Everything was all around insecurity. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for being open about it because it's interesting even saying the word it, I, I have this voice in my head that says, don't call him insecure, even though I'm talking to someone who's being really vulnerable in mm. talking about what it feels like to be insecure. And so that's really my favorite part of doing this podcast is being able to name the parts of being human that as a society, even though we've come a long way and we continue to, don't get talked about as much as I think that they could, that that is a commonality, whether you're an addict alcoholic or, you know, or not, which there's more than two kinds of people, but so many of us suffer from that. I wanted to take us back. This is an area I'm not sure you want to talk about. If you don't, mm -hmm. that's okay. But you were in Afghanistan and that's mm -hmm. a pretty big marker on your journey is my guess. Is there anything that you can share with us about how that shaped you even if you don't want to go into detail, if you do, that's okay. But I know you mentioned you had PTSD afterward. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's a constant threat, right? And like, so I'm an infantryman and um, there's a, there's that sort of constant threat. Finding ways to, as you, the word you used earlier was cope, finding ways to cope with that um, instead of talking about it and feeling it and uh, being authentic about where I'm at and my feelings, like instead moving past and becoming this different aggressive identity, this type A personality, um, and, and just sort of escape myself into this different identity was, um, was something I really wanted to do as often as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, it's almost like we were talking about how drugs and alcohol are in some ways a solution, which can sound strange to describe them like that, but they can help us to cope with life. And as you talk about what it's like to be in active combat and to constantly have your life under threat, even if it's sort of like this background noise that, you know, I've never dealt with, but I imagine could be, yeah, we're adaptable, but it makes sense that you likely grew some layers to protect yourself. And so as we talk about vulnerability and, you know, naming feelings, I also, I guess I'm just kind of naming the fact that sometimes not being vulnerable is, is the choice as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because you had to get through it. So I will, I will bring us back to, um, to, your, to your arc. And like I said, like any human life, there are constantly, I'm picturing like a rainbow. It's like, there's always these kind of different paths going on, whether it's relationships or mental health or professional career. 
But in terms of the way your addiction was progressing, even if it was on pause when you were over there in Afghanistan, and thank you for your service, by the way. Um, yeah, it's an honor. When you came back, let's, let's go to that place. You, you were starting to get into it earlier. You said you came back with some stuff. And mm -hmm. how does that figure into your journey to eventual recovery, which we'll get to? Yeah, I mean, so um, when I came back from Afghanistan, there, there was roughly about six months there where, um, where yeah, of course, like, like the drinking was through the roof and, and there were some consequences as a result um, from, from getting in trouble, um, uh, trying to fight a platoon sergeant and spitting on his face and just different things. It's one of those things where, like I said, you wake up in the morning, it's like, dude, you know what you did last night it's one of those things right and so you have those experiences and and um another experience where i, I woke up in the morning and yeah my jaw is broken in two spots and I'm, <laughs> my mattress is full of blood and i have no idea what happened right mm -hmm. and so um uh, there's there's a lot of these sort of consequences that happen as a as a result of um, drinking on a heavy basis and so it ultimately led to that combined with the ptsd is what led me to be out of the military i guess my exit out of the military isn't ne something necessarily that like I, i'm proud about but i i know when i look at it as far as my trauma and, and my disease um, it's not something that i have shame about anymore i should say i, I used to for sure but um so it's it was uh, basically a, a, a night of, of drinking um, that led me into, I think I made some comments that led around either homicide type ideations or suicide or both or something um, within my uh, drunken stupor. And I ended up in a mental hospital. And uh, that's where um, I think the official diagnosis of PTSD finally came down. After that experience, um, the the doctors um, uh, essentially said, well, you can either get out um, or, or you can change your MOS, you can change your job. And for me at the time, um, my view on things, my real perspective on things was there's only two jobs in the military, there's infantry and support, and I'm not gonna be support if I can't be the, in the infantry, so I'll get out. So um, yeah, they, they gave me 15 grand to get out, to give, a drug addict and alcoholic 15 grand um, uh, is <laughs> is a scary thing like you know I'm, I'm not blaming them at all it's it's not their fault and what I did with it was my own thing but um, funny thing about getting 15 grand you can take razor blades to it and it turns into a whole lot of methamphetamine so um, yeah oh my gosh as I hear that it's like the adult the adult sober version of me is like oh how neat you could put a small down payment down on a house and the drug addict in me is like, oh, that's like a month. <laughs> yeah. that, that's nothing. Yeah. And terrifying. And, and really, mm -hmm. that's like your life. You live mm -hmm. to tell the tale, but it sounds like you got this big lump sum. And that, I'm guessing, really catapulted your drug use. Yeah, that the addiction really catapulted, went to another level. Yeah. And it was... For me, as, a, as an addict at the time, it was great because I had the perfect excuse, right? Like um, when people would be like, you know, kind of begin to acknowledge the weird behavior, begin to acknowledge like what's going on with you. I would look at them and like just demean them like you're talking to a combat vet. How dare you question me? I have PTSD. Like how dare you? Like beautiful uh, manipulation and, and just like. 
perfect. Yeah, I had, I had, I had the excuse. perfect excuse. Yeah. Yeah. And you did. And you did. And and both can be true, right? I think that's the complex thing for both us yeah. as people who might be hurting and completely screwing our lives up and the people that love us that can actually believe like, well, he does have PTSD. He did just mm-hmm. go to combat. He he is struggling because he left the military. All of that can be true. And what mm-hmm. tangled webs we weave. So Yeah. That fifteen grand ran out. Um, relatively quickly, as as you would guess, and um, so you know my my own pride, my own sense of I don't know being better than other people or something like this, whatever sort of um, unhealthy perspective I had going on at the time. I'm like, okay, well, I'm I'm going to work two full time jobs. So one eight hour job was to pay for rent and bills and that sort of thing, and the other eight hour job was to pay for drugs. And so I had to convince myself within my own denial that, see, I don't have a problem, like, because I'm paying for my drugs, I'm not stealing for it, I'm not doing it in unhealthy ways, I'm a productive citizen, and so um, uh, all that sort of stuff. So it really fed into that denial, um, and, and where that led me, one of the jobs I was working was, um, was a landscaping job, and um, I had done landscaping for my dad's company for off and on for years since I was 16. And, um, and so we'd go to different job sites and one of the job sites happened to be my dad's house, right? <laughs> Which is a pretty good uh, gig. If you're running a company, you have your, uh, your own landscape crew do your yard for you. <laughs> and so, um, uh, so yeah, I would always schedule it to where my, I would get to my dad's around lunchtime so we could take a break. I, I would go into my dad's house. I'd go into his bathroom. Um, and then I would uh, get high, right? Get a pick me up. And then I'd go back out and work while all the rest of the workers are out there doing, eating lunch and doing what uh, normal human beings do during lunchtime. And so um, on this particular occasion, which is weird because I'm very, um, uh, I'm very detailed, right? And so um, I had never left my drugs anywhere, despite the fact being high out of my, out of my mind multiple occasions. Um, I've never left them anywhere. And somehow on this particular occasion, when I put my, my stash back into this little Ziploc or zip pouch thing I had, and I put it back into my back pocket, I didn't put it back into my back pocket, it fell on the ground. And um, my, so for the next few days, my dad handled this perfectly. Um, he didn't say anything. Um, and <laughs> for the next few days, I like just wandered around like, what did I do with it? And my fear kept going back to, I must've left it at my dad's house. I must've left my stash back at my dad's house, but I'm like, no, no, there's no way. I dropped it somewhere else. I kept looking and looking and looking for it and I couldn't find it. And my dad waited a few days. Um, I needed some help with moving some things and my dad came over and helped. And um, as he was getting ready to leave, he stopped and said, I want to talk to you about something. Mm -hmm. And I knew exactly. I had that same response. I had that. I all know that my gut feeling. Of yeah. Like, oh. That, that sort of gulp of misery, just like, Oh, and so, um, anyway, I'm like, okay. And he said, okay, well, um, are you do, are you using drugs? I remember having this thought in my mind, I'm kind of getting emotional thinking about it, but I remember having this thought in my mind of, well, of course I can lie about this, but why? He knows. And I said, 
yes. And I think he, both of us were surprised by the answer. And, and, and he said, okay, well, you know, and, and he handled it. He confronted me in the perfect way. He confronted me like a man. He confronted me in a way that, um, um, if I were to lie to him in that face in that moment and lie to his face in that moment, it would just brought on a whole, whole new level of shame for me in my world. And so, um, he said, you know, well, would you want me to help you? I can help you. Um, before he said, I can help you. He said, well, I can't have you working for me going around high and driving around on my, my trucks and stuff, mm -hmm. but I want to help you. Would you like the help? And to both of our surprise, I said, yes. And um, that moment changed my life. So <laughs> I don't know why I'm getting emotional right now. Um, so I just, I want to um, pause this there for just yeah. a second because it is a powerful moment. And, and I'm emotional because to me, that moment when a drug addict decides there could potentially in some small sliver, thin thread, of like chooses hope, which to me, hope is being honest. You are mm -hmm. uh, open to help. Like that is the most magical moment. And the only reason I'm talking to you today, the only reason I'm here today is that for some reason, you know, we're of those lucky ones that were able to grasp mm -hmm. onto that thread. Yeah. So I just want to pause and give it a little bit of do. I think part of, I'm going to project and say part of the emotions it brings. And I know that there's more I can just sense from your story. Mm -hmm around this and your dad and all of it, but it's also just grace. Like that is your moment of grace. That is the tip of your story in terms of this arc. So, yeah. um, so I'm so glad that you, yeah. that you said, yes. Yeah. So, so tell yeah. us more, then what happened. Thanks for breaking in there. Give me a moment to compose myself. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, um, I said yes. Um, and, and he, along with the help of my stepmom, Robin, um, uh, they worked to connect me with the VA um, uh, because I wasn't connected with the VA yet at that time. Um, I was very proud. I didn't, I didn't need their help and I didn't want their help and all that sort of stuff. Um, they connected me with the VA. Uh, they, uh, uh, the VA quickly got me into a very small group that had just started at the time, a dual diagnosis group for veterans with PTSD and addiction issues. Um, they got me into this group and I was going to this group on a weekly basis and trying to get sober on my own, but I had no idea what that meant. Um, I didn't even know about um, there being a possibility of meetings out there or groups that someone can go to for their own recovery. And so I didn't even know about that stuff. I didn't know it existed. And so one day we're having a, um, we're doing this dual diagnosis group at the VA and everyone's, it's like a group of five people at the time. The group grew to be huge but at the time since it was just starting it's like five people and um the guy who was leading it was named Leif Carlson who is another person I owe my life to um and so uh he's going around and, and everybody's sharing um within the group and uh it came my time and I remember I had this moment of just this is all bs this is all bs like what am I doing here and so it came out in this way where I said, okay, um, all of you guys are talking about this word sobriety. I don't know what that means. I assume it means that you stop using um, your drug of choice. I don't know. But um, here's my thing. Um, I can get three days sober. And when I said three days sober then, 
that meant just meth. That didn't mean alcohol. I was still drinking daily. Um, but I, I said, look, I can get three days of sobriety at the most. And then I go back. There's nothing. I can't get past that three day window. And you guys are sitting here talking to me about sobriety or you guys are talking about sobriety. And I don't know what that means. And then, uh, and I, and I looked at Leaf and I pointed at him because he represented the VA to me at the time. I said, and you guys tell me to get sobriety, but yet I got to be on, on a waiting list to go into, into, to go into rehab for six months. I'm going to be dead in six months. And here's the thing, like, I, I, I want this. I want to get off of meth, but it's not happening and it's not going to work. And today is day three. I'm going to leave today. I'm going to go to the drug dealer's house right after this, despite the fact that I do not want to. Within every fiber of my being, I do not want to, but the gas pedal will hit. The steering wheel will drive me directly there. Mm -hmm. And so I know as I was saying that, as I was saying those words were coming out of me, is one of those times where it kind of just happened a moment ago when I was talking about the yes, but um, where I started to talk and I started to get choked up, get in my feelings. And so I recognized that. And especially at that time, I didn't want to get in those feelings. So I would talk as fast as I can to try to get out of them. But I got more and more choked up and I couldn't get through a sentence. So everything that I just said probably lasted about 15 minutes of me doing snot bubbles all over myself. But um, while explaining that I can't get sober. And, and I remember I'm pointing at Leaf. Like, how dare you tell me to get sober? You know, like... And, and you have me on a six-month waiting list. I need this now. And so the, the meeting ended, and I can't remember what they said. They might have said something nice and trying to call me or whatever, you know, this too shall pass type stuff. And so uh, I remember I was getting up to leave, and leave pulled me aside. I thought, oh, no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know, like, I'm kicked out of the group or something. He goes, do you want to go? Are you serious? You want to go? You'll go. You won't back out. You'll go. I said, yes, I want to go. And so he said, okay, let me see what I can do. So he got together with a guy, as far as what I know from the backstory from what Leaf told me, he got together with a guy named Bill Beverly, who's recently retired um, from the VA. And, uh, and they um, pulled, pulled some strings for me and, and got me to the front of the line, so to speak. So uh, I, I went into Progress House in Coloma, California. It is an amazing place and it is, uh, <laughs> there's no one's cooking your food. No one's cleaning up for you. No one's, uh, and, you know, it, it's not this five-star place where you get this great food. It's none of that. And everybody, everybody there, there wasn't anybody there joking around. There wasn't anybody there just there to buy time. There wasn't anybody there because their parents got them there. Everybody who was there was there because they wanted it every single human being wow. and they saw that place as holy ground and it happened to be i forget what prop it was but it was when when we began letting people out of prison who were there on jail offenses and, and and that sort of thing and it was right right at that time so the place was it was me combat vet with one other combat vet and a bunch of guys who were just let out of prison and everybody wanted it it was a great place yeah. kenny when did you get sober what what was your what is your sobriety date January 29, 2007. Yeah. Well, that is amazing. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much of what you just said that is important, not just to your story and not just to the story of an addict or alcoholic, but I think to anyone who has been to 
what I like to call the dark night of the soul mm-hmm. because it, it is very dark. I think that, you know, because we can only fit this story into one podcast for now, we can't stay here that long, but this is such an important moment. And I'm going to go back to that day at the VA when you're in that group and you break down, especially with what we've talked about with the masculinity ideas mm-hmm. that were a part of your world that shows us like where you were at emotionally and maybe kind of the varnish that we all have on the outside, the difference between how we feel and how we act. It sounds like that veil was pretty thin for you at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm just shedding light on it because I think in various ways we have been there as humans where it's like when you said you got to the point where you were like, this is bullshit. I know that feeling. And Mm -hmm. I think all of us have kind of almost like an inner child. It's like, we don't use the word like, fuck yet. But we're like, F this. Like, this Mm -hmm. is, I'm hurting. You guys are all full of it. I don't see answers. There's no way out. And, um, And part of your story is that you voicing that, that inner feeling turned out to be part of your grace. And as we get to the other side of your journey, as things start to heal, Tell me about that phase of your life. Early recovery for me sucked. Um, it, it was it was a big challenge. Post-acute withdrawal was awful. My post-acute withdrawal lasted about six months. Um, it, it was it was awful. I went into a whole lot of depression. Um, the thing that really helped me was uh, the community of like-minded individuals and, and support groups. And um, the first six months, that's what kept me sober. I want to say a thought around around the post-acute withdrawal experience real quick. So um, the the six months didn't have to be six months. It lasted six months from what, from what I know about the brain now. Um, I, that was per, for sure extended because um, I wasn't doing other things from a holistic standpoint. I wasn't exercising. I, I, I was eating like... <laughs> the worst possible foods as much as possible. Um, I like I wasn't doing anything to work on particular traumas at the time. I was acknowledging them and that's about it, but I wasn't doing anything to work on them at the time. So there's a lot going on that prolonged that post-acute withdrawal. If I if I was exercising, if I was eating appropriately, if I was getting good sleep, that would have changed so much about what was going on neurologically within my mind and healing up, healing up everything going on within that. So if, in case anybody's listening and they're about to go into that post-acute withdrawal or they're fearing it, um, and don't don't fear it, and because um, what happens on the other end um, makes it far worth it. So, I, um, and then and then once I got through that post-acute withdrawal, I began leaning into different areas of life, um, particular like work and uh, and reconnecting with family, um, uh, just kind of reconnecting with life again. Um, Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of bad stuff that happened within that six months. And that's important because I, I think that often it's easy to think, you know, especially in retrospect, when things get really far away, that it was like, oh, you know, you took away the thing that was causing the pain and things got better. And really you took away the thing that was taking away your pain and you felt it. And that to me is uh, the, the, the more universal part of being human is that actually feeling stuff is the challenge Mm -hmm. in whatever situation we're in. And I know we're having to skim a lot. I wish we weren't, but I just want to ask you, um, you know, there's so much of your life that has happened since 2007. And 
I would love to hear, you know, if we could sum up 13 years in a few minutes, what are the, the biggest gifts that you would say this ginormous change that you made? What are the biggest gifts you got from that? I know 13 years is that sort of what I once viewed as impossible. And so that's a gift. Um, but some of the things, right. Um, one, one of the biggest, I got sober at 24. So if you did the math um, and, and for me at 24, I didn't have much to lose other than money, other than, um, other than relationships. Um, and I mean, that's about it. And self-respect, right. Th th that was it. Self-respect was my biggest sort of flag. But the, the other one was the loss of a relationship in particular, the loss of my best friend. And we had grown up together. Um, we started using together and losing that relationship through substances. And he supported me while I was in the military, while I was off. And, and he would uh, send me letters and stuff when I was in Afghanistan. Like, I love this man. Um, very important uh, guy to me. Um, his name's Sean Minson. And so uh, uh, when our relationship cut ties, that was devastating to me. I didn't let him show it. I didn't let anybody see that at the time, but it was devastating to me. And so one of the cool things was, you know, after sobriety, he was able to lean on me a little bit later in my sobriety. And, and um, about, I think somewhere around seven years of sobriety, um, this is a really cool turnaround to where um, he calls me and asks me to officiate his wedding for him, right? Like, is that not one of the coolest things ever? Like, I'm not, I'm not a pastor, but, um, and, you know, I went online and got, uh, got, a, got a license in about five minutes, but um, I was able to officiate his wedding. And that, that was um, such an honor, something that who in their right minds would want me to officiate their wedding um, if I was still using. And so um, the other thing I think about is, is my wife, Elena, and, and my boys, as you mentioned, I, I have four. Um, I was going to say a joke and say I have 15, but yeah, um, there, there's a lot of them. And, and so like my wife is definitely someone who, first of all, I would never have gone after if I was still in my use um, or even healthy. Like even like, when I met her was right at the perfect time because prior to that, I would have never been interested and she would have never been interested. And my wife is amazing. And so, so there's that, um, my kids like today, real quick, quick, quick story. I'm, I'm getting a cramp right now, which is why I'm shifting. <laughs> it's hard to record in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Um, today, um, my two-year-old, I, I have my two-year-old's, um, head in my hand and, and kind of holding like holding his head in my hand with his face um, towards me. I'm just like that. He looks up to me. He's like, right. And just sighs in my hand as he's looking at me. Like uh, this stuff is amazing. Um, and and I, I get to have stuff like that. And the, the other thing is um, uh, the place of purpose in the world and, and working with, I call them my people, people like you, Melissa, and, and other people who, out, who are out there um, currently struggling or, or just out of struggling. Um, and, and so th what a blessing to be able to uh, be happy about what I'm doing, excited about what I'm doing, getting up in the morning and be like, oh, I can't wait to see so-and-so and, -so and see, see how he's doing today. Um, and that leads me into like my faith and spirituality. And, and that's kind of the glue of all of this, the, the spiritual component. Um, and the spiritual component even leading into me jumping in and doing my own private practice like 
um, we've touched a little bit on insecurity. It's there for a reason, and, and in particular childhood trauma. So um, starting a private practice, are you kidding me? No way, no way. And so uh, that leads into the faith and spirituality piece of just being like, okay, this is it, now's the time. And um, the last one, or I guess I want to share, um, is probably because it's uh, ultimately the uh, best memory um, I've ever had within um, my sobriety, I think. Um, so my dad, uh, I had mentioned my dad a, a once or twice within this interview, and um, I'm speaking about him in past tense, um, uh, for, for obviously because he's passed away. Um, but what this uh, was sobriety gave me. So I do this thing. Um, I hesitate to say it because I feel like it, it might ruin it in some way. But I, I do this thing with um, uh, when when we get a birthday coin or or when you get acknowledgement of of getting another year of sobriety or getting achieving a goal within sobriety. Um, for me, I don't, I don't keep those things. I give them away to people who have particular impact in my recovery. And, um, I don't say that because I want someone to, to use that or to do that as well, or to make them feel guilty for keeping it for themselves. Keep it for yourself. It's something you've earned. Uh, but for me on, on my 10th, 10th year of sobriety, um, I wanted to give my 10 year coin, uh, to my dad. And, uh, so we're sitting uh, in, it's the Super Bowl. Everybody else is off doing their own things. Me and my dad is sitting there in the living room. Uh, we were having this pretty cool moment and there is one of the greatest comebacks ever, if not the greatest comeback ever in Super Bowl history. Um, uh, and so, uh, and the game ended and I'd written a card for, for my dad, just explaining the significance of, of him in, in sobriety for me and explaining how he was that first uh, person to call me out and confront me on this. And he was that first person to get me to be honest. Um, he was that first person to uh, um, get me to check myself and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and to help and to do what he said he would do, to walk through with it and to follow through with it. Um, and so, uh, I, I left this um, this card for my dad, along with the coin, just explaining how much I love him, explaining uh, how much I love my wife and my kids, and how much I love my life, and it's all because of him confronting me. And I know, um, I know, because I work with parents now, they're always fearful about that confrontation. Um, it was so important to me, and. Um, so I left the card, <laughs> speaking of confronting or avoiding, um, uh, I left the card on, on the counter um, as the game ended, gave my dad a hug. Hey, dad, I love you. Um, I left you a card up there on the counter. That, that's for you. And to try to avoid the moment of, of him reading it right in front of me, right? And that emotional moment. And um, so uh, I go and I uh, get my wife and, and or you know, my family, we go out and get in the car. And at the time, my wife's driving this tiny little um, Toyota Camry. And, uh, and so uh, as we're getting ready to leave, I see my dad walking out and he yells, Kenny, Kenny. I roll down my window. He goes, hold on a second. 
and he starts walking towards me. And my dad was a big man, real big man. I said at the beginning of this, I'm a small man. My dad is a big man. Um, I got the short end of the stick. Just ask my brother. Um, so uh, he, he comes in and he shoves his big body into this little tiny window opening of the Toyota Camry. And he goes and he tries to give me a hug. And he's like, he's, and, and he's just like, He's breathing hard, not because um, he's stuck in the window, but because he's trying to contain himself and compose himself. And so I'm like, hold on, Dad, let's do this the right way. So he steps out. I step out, and I give him a hug, and I wrap my arms around him. And uh, we just sort of breathe into each other's presence, right? It's just soak that in. And... Uh, Anyway, so we were just holding, and I'm, I'm like, I'm just holding my dad, who's a much bigger than, man than me, and he's just holding all his weight into me as I'm holding him up, and he's just, he's so grateful. And I got this opportunity, but the, and I think less than a week, week or so later, uh, I got the call that nobody wants to get, right, about their family member. My dad had passed. Um, but man, I can't, I can't be more grateful that I got that opportunity with my dad. Now I'm ugly crying on a podcast. Um, you have me ugly crying. Many uh, things. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it's, if that was the only gift I was going to get, that's, that's worth it. That's worth all the challenge. That's worth all the countercultural stuff that you got to do to be in sobriety. That's worth all the times of saying no when it seems like the situation feels yes. It's worth it's worth that in six months of post-acute withdrawal. That sucks. It's worth all of it. It's worth it. That moment was everything to me. That moment will continue to carry me through along with other stuff I do to maintain proper self-care. But I can't ask for a better memory. So, I mean, it, I feel anyway. like I'm, I hate to stop you. And, uh, but once again, I want to pause in this very powerful part of your story, because not only does that moment carry you through, but that moment's carrying me through right now. And I think people listening will also get the chance because what you did with your dad right then is something I was already kind of doing in my mind before that you were talking about the gifts of sobriety and you know, you have these four kids and you were talking about holding your son in your arms earlier and how he just like had this big sigh. And I know that sigh as a child and as a parent of just like, I am safe with you. And I'm going to grab a sock from my closet and wipe <laughs> my nose. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Recording in the closet. There's ample yeah. fabric, <laughs> but you're, your life, all the last 13 years, and these new, I mean, not only, um, Elena, is that your wife's name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know how, I'm sure, profoundly you've impacted her life. And, and these four beings that wouldn't even be here. And that moment, you know, you wouldn't have had with your dad in the driveway through the car window, or even, um, I guess, just zooming back to that moment that he confronted you. And some part of you was willing to fight through the muck both right then some part of you was willing to be honest and then every single decision you made after that because our life 
is a continuous series of decisions, especially sobriety. Mm-hmm. And, and in, the, in the moment, they seem so small and inconsequential, right? But when we give this kind of retrospect and see just how much your life and the world changed, I always like that. I don't know if it's a quote or just a saying that like this guy wanted to change the world, but he didn't know how. So he tried to change his country, but it was just too hard. And then he tried to change his town, but it was just too much. And, and then he just tried to change his family and like they would still just do whatever the fuck they wanted. I don't think that's how the quote goes, but then he changes himself. And when he changes himself, he changes his family and his family in turn changes the community. The community affects the country and the world. And, and I feel like, you know, as we near the end of this interview and we're in the middle of a global pandemic and, and one that in some ways has never made it more, more apparent just how connected we are to each other because mm-hmm. never before have I thought about how many hands have been on this thing I'm holding or if I've touched something and yeah. was I sick? And, and I bring that up because it so relates to the journey that we just went on with you. And I'm so glad that you were honest with your dad that day, that you were willing to cross the abyss. We talk about the dark night of the soul. And once again, anyone that might be listening and struggling, whether it's an obvious to society kind of struggle or an inner struggle with you know, mental health or insecurity or whatever it is that might be happening, uh, you know, let Kenny's journey be that thread of hope in front of you. We don't have to share a lot of outward stuff in common. Uh, even you and I, it's like we have some stuff in common. We're around the same age. Um, but like your story is way different than mine. And oh my gosh, it's exactly the same. Mm. And I'm, yeah. so, I'm just so grateful for the earnestness with which I think the seriousness with which you took this interview too, that you're willing to go to these places with us. Because, um, because this is the stuff of life. So I'm just, I'm just so grateful for that. And, um, and so thank you for being game. I had already arranged an interview with Kenny before this happened and you were very kind in terms of just pivoting. Like, we're not going to go into what should I do with my life? How do you figure that out? We're going to stay in. How did I overcome this really difficult point? So I would love to have you back. We can dive into different parts of your journey, but, um, in terms of this particular series, I'm just so grateful to have had your take. And anyone listening, if you want to follow up with Kenny, I will have a link to his website, his anything that you want to link to, I'll have it in the show notes. So yeah. you will be able to follow up with him if you'd like to. And I'm just so grateful for your time. So thank you. And I'm just yeah. going to take this opportunity to thank Elena, because I kept saying that before <laughs> we were recording, <laughs> when you have four kids and I'm taking you away in the middle of a pandemic, I know that's off kilter for the family. So I'm so grateful mm. for your wife and your family and, and just to you and your honesty. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. All right. You too. If you liked what you heard today, please pass this podcast along to someone you know who would benefit. It would also be awesome if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It's how we attract new guests, reach more people, and ultimately change the world. I mean, imagine what kind of world we'd live in if everyone was doing something they actually wanted to do with their life. Speaking of which, if you want help finding purpose or figuring out what the heck to do with your life, hit me up. It's what I do as a coach. Introduce you to your highest, clearest, and most badass brave self. I promise that's the version of you the world most needs. 
If you're interested in coaching, would like to join my email list, or if you know someone who'd be a great guest on this podcast, shoot me an email at followyourfire at gmail.com. That's followyourfire at gmail.com. Until next time, follow those fires, my peaches. Thank you.